One of the reasons why the early Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire was that they were considered to be atheists. After all, they refused to worship all the other gods of the numerous peoples and regions of the empire, not to mention the official gods of Rome and the emperor himself. Instead, they taught that they must only worship the one true god, their god. It has been nearly 2,000 years since then, and the gods of ancient Rome are no longer worshipped in their homeland. The Vatican, the center of the Roman Catholic Christianity, stands at the heart of Rome. And more than a third of the human population aligned themselves with Christianity, with a quarter more with Islam, which also claim to worship this god. So it seems that the Christians have displaced all the other gods, leaving only their god standing. However, this telling of the story actually misses one crucial step. It isn't simply that Christians were rejecting the gods of all other peoples, wanting only their god to remain. That is not quite what they were up to. From about the seven centuries before Jesus to the century after his birth, the Jews and the Christians were redefining their very idea of God. And after that, the gods of the peoples around them no longer fit the meaning of what they meant by God. God in Christianity was not a God. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore important stories, ideas, and insights in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion, to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungo-jung, and this is our seventh episode, What Do You Mean by God? Part 3, Why God is Not a god. Let's start with a thought experiment. Isaac Asimov, a professor of biochemistry and one of the greatest science fiction writers to this day, wrote a following short story in 1956 titled The Last Question. In the story, humans become concerned that everything will eventually die. Stars, life, humanity, everything. The universe will one day end. So they asked this supercomputer how to avoid this fate. Well, that's not the exact question they asked, but that's what they meant. And the computer can't answer because there's insufficient data. Each era, humans ask its progressively more advanced successor the same question. And the computer gives the same answer, insufficient data. Eons later, long after all of humanity, every star, even matter, energy, space, and time is gone, the computer's final successor is left with that one last question that it could never answer. How to reverse the death of the universe? So in hyperspace, beyond gravity or time, it continues to process that question, combining and recombining all the data about the universe and its laws, and finally discovers the answer. But there is no longer anyone to give the answer to. So the computer decides to answer by demonstration, which would also create someone who can receive the answer. And the computer begins by speaking these words. Let there be light. And there was light. So here's the question. Which is God in the story? Or is there one? 
is the supercomputer at the end God? I mean, it seems it would be, at least for the new human beings living in the universe that it brought into existence. But if we say that this computer had an original, someone made it, fair enough. But is that the only reason? If we leave that aside, is this computer what we would mean by God? Now Asimov was an atheist, but it seems that this is what he would mean by God, an entity in an alternate space beyond normal space and time, coming up with a way to bring an entire universe into existence because it has come to know all of the structures of reality. But if you have been listening to the series, specifically our first and the fourth episode, you may be able to guess the appropriate Christian answer to this. What Christians would call God in Asimov's story is not this all-powerful supercomputer at the end, but more the structures of reality that this computer has been inquiring after to come up with a way to bring back the universe. I say more because there's much more to the Christian idea of God than that, but it will do as far as this story is concerned. It is reality and reality's infinite possibilities that the supercomputer in the story explores and examines for eons upon eons. And in the end, it is by following the laws, the principles, the truth of this reality, what the Gospel of John calls the Logos of God, that the computer brings back the universe and so answers the story's eponymous last question. The godlike supercomputer is an entity. And the two, like all entities, must interact with reality, which is to say, it must wrestle with what Christians call God. Asimov's computer is a God, but not God with the capital G. The Jewish and the Christian idea of God has grown and expanded over the millennia, Rather like how in the parable a couple of episodes ago, the child's understanding of his mother's love, or even the definition of mother, changed and matured as he grew up. This Jewish and Christian idea of God probably began as something that was not too different from the beliefs about gods held by the peoples around them. I say probably because the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew Torah, where the idea of God is introduced, is more or less a final version that was compiled and put together roughly 2,500 years ago. Now, that does not mean that the ideas and the stories that these books present are only 2,500 years old, because we know that the Torah was woven together from far older sources, written records and oral traditions that are now lost to us, sources that claim to be from the time of Moses and before. So what we can tell of how their understanding of God grew over the centuries is kind of a reasoned reconstruction of that transformation, and what I will briefly say here is a simplistic and introductory summary of that. For the ancient Israelites, their God was the one that their forefathers encountered in the past and the one who entered a covenantal relationship with them. They would follow the commands and laws of this God, named Yahweh, and in turn he would protect them and guide them, upholding the promise made with them. These Israelites did not seem to have a particular doctrine that their God was the only God per se. There are a number of times in the Bible where the ancient Israelites seem to acknowledge that other nations had their gods too. However, Israel had made the promise that they as a people would only follow Yahweh, and they firmly believed 
that unlike the gods of other peoples, their god has and will work wonders to keep his end of the promise. They proclaim that he had done so in Egypt when he brought them out of slavery, and that he has done so throughout the history of their nation. This idea of God seems to have been refined and expanded during the subsequent history of Israel and Judah. Now, there were many sources that drove this transformation. Some of these were external. Thoughts and beliefs of people and nations around them were some of the building blocks of the new idea of God that would eventually emerge. There are some Babylonian, Egyptian, and Canaanite themes and imageries that appear in the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament. Zoroastrianism, as the main religious and philosophical tradition of the Persian Empire, very likely influenced the Jewish thought on God of that period. And Greek philosophy had profound influences on Jewish and Christian thought later. Of course, this is not very different from how modern science and philosophy are key dialogue partners for Christian theologians today and how they think about God. However, these external influences were integrated into the core belief about God held by the Israelites and their later Jewish remnants, belief about the God who made the covenant with them. These core beliefs were the seeds that would grow into the new idea of God that Christians would eventually hold. One was the idea, which was increasingly refined as the time passed, that Yahweh did not need their worship, nor their sacrifices, nor their offering. These were important part of the relationship that Israelites had with him, yes, but their God was not a mere tribal or national deity who would protect them simply in exchange for their acts of devotion. Prophets of Israel would remind them of this often. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, their God would declare through the prophets. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. If his people were unjust and corrupt, this God would bring judgment upon them and even appoint foreign peoples and nations to punish them even to the point of destroying his own temple. Furthermore, this God judged not only Israel, but all nations. Now, Powerful ruling deities that care about justice and morality are present in many cultures. But the Jews then had to wrestle with that idea further. What does it mean for the deity to uphold and bring about justice in all nations, which presumably had their own gods? The other old idea was the belief that their god was also the creator of the world. Now, This belief in the creator deity is also quite common in cultures and peoples across the world. An immediate example is the god named El, who the neighboring peoples around ancient Israel worshipped as a creator, as well as a father to all the other gods in their pantheon. If the name El sounds familiar to you, it's because it is also one of the names of God in the Bible. It's where the names like Daniel, Samuel, and Michael or Mikael comes from. But again, the Jews and later the Christians had to work out the implication of this idea. What does it mean for a deity to be the creator? Did this deity create only certain things or everything? If he created everything, then what is the relation between the creator and everything else? One key theme that came up for ancient Israel was on the primordial forces of chaos. The ancient religions of nations around Israel believed that the gods who made the world had to battle primordial monsters of chaos that dwell beneath the seas entities that were incomprehensible and terrifying beyond imagination. Ra, the sun god of Egypt, had to battle Apophis, the serpent of chaos and darkness 
lying in wait beyond the horizon. Marduk of Babylon became the king of the gods after killing the dragon mother, Tiamat, who arose from the sea. Some of the old psalms in the Bible likewise mention how the God of Israel slew the Leviathan, the great sea serpent. However, the creation story in the Bible then tells that it is God who created the Leviathan and the great monsters of the sea, that God himself gave these creatures their own place in the world and their lifespan. All these, however, then raises the question, as they wrestle with the implications of what they believed about God as the creator, the ruler, and judge of all things, the question becomes, is God really like other gods? Their eventual answer was a new idea of God, God who was not a God. Names are important. They tell us what it is we are trying to describe, even if, as Lao Tzu points out, they are insufficient and are limited to the context of how we relate to it. Names also make you distinct and set you apart from others. Paul is not Peter, nor Patrick, nor Priscilla. They even come with roles and domains. Paul, the evangelist, Patrick, the saint of Ireland. This is even more so with gods. They have names like Zeus, or Odin, or Ra, or Marduk, or Baal. And they have roles and domains. They are the gods of the sky, or the sun, or the thunder and the rain, or the sea, or fire, or earth, or wind, or seasons. They preside over justice, commerce, crafting, or war. And depending on the domains they rule over, they are placed within a hierarchy. Then we have the Jewish and the Christian idea of God, Islam as well, later. Their God is simply called God. Allah, by the way, literally means the God. And God is a very odd name, in that it isn't a name at all. It gives no distinction. It does not come with any domain or role. It's curiously undefined. Now, there is a covenantal name of God given to the Israelites, Yahweh, which is written as Lord in the English Bible, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. It is a name that makes the God of Israel distinct from the other gods. But then the meaning behind that name raises the same issue. It isn't really a proper name. Again, no role, no domain, no distinction. That is because the meaning associated with Yahweh ranges from I am that I am, or I will be what I will be, or I cause to be what I cause to be. And that means both everything and nothing in particular. This name encompasses all of the limitless and infinite possibilities of what is or can happen. And according to the Bible, you can narrow that infinity down only by personally following this Yahweh and experiencing for yourself what this I cause to be causes specifically in your life. And even that would be limited to only what you can say. Then there's a word again, God, with a capital G. In the original Hebrew, God with a capital G is Elohim, which literally means gods, as in gods plural, all the gods everywhere at all times. The word comes from El, who was a creator deity in the Canaanite pantheon who fathered the other gods, so it means El and all the beings of El, except that the Jews believe in one God. And in the Hebrew text of the Bible, Elohim can mean gods including the gods of the other nations, but whenever the word is used for the God of Israel, the verb that follows it is singular. 
That is, what the Bible means by God with a capital G is one, yet uses a word that refers to all the gods together. And it is this Elohim who create all things and rules over all the creation according to the book of Genesis. And when Moses asks about the proper name of Elohim, Elohim responds by saying, I am that I am. It seems to be that the idea of God that the Jews and later the Christians eventually arrived at was that of the divine ground upon which every power and authority of all the supposed gods everywhere and at all times were founded on. This divine ground is what they now mean by God. But because of this, their God is not a God of any one people or of any domain or any role. But every role, every domain, every power is from and of this divine ground, this God. And every people and nation is already engaged with him. And gender word is used rather loosely here. This God who is the divine ground is beyond proper names, beyond description, other than the infinite and indefinable I am that I am. But because this name is undefined with infinite possibilities, this name that isn't a name is also an invitation to a personal relationship, an invitation to engage and wrestle with this God who caused to be and discover what he will indeed cause to be. And it was this invitation that had been extended to Moses and to the people of Israel. Yet one of the things that the people of Israel found was that this I am that I am did have a personality, so to speak. What this divine ground caused to be depended on those engaged with him, what kind of beings they were and became. And in this relationship, justice mattered, mercy mattered, truth mattered. And this was true no matter what you were. Or as I said in the first episode, you could be a superhero, you could be an advanced civilization spanning a thousand galaxies, you could even be a god, yet this god, this infinite reality, is who you're interacting with, the standard and truth that your thoughts and actions are measured by at all times. And that was what the Jews and the Christians would from then on call God. That was a revolutionary idea. It isn't simply that they disbelieved all the other gods other than their own. They redefined the idea of God so that the other gods, gods with limited names and domains, were no longer what they meant by God. Their message, worship the one true God, was not worship this God over that God. Rather, it was do not call God what should not be called God. What the Christians were trying to do with this new idea of God when they encountered other peoples were not simply displacing their gods. They first examined the beliefs of other peoples to see if there was a parallel idea to their belief in God who is not a God. Was there something in the other nation's beliefs that is also this divine ground, this I am that I am? Then their call to their neighboring people was that one should not bow or worship anything less than that, no matter how powerful or fearsome it may seem to frail human beings. This approach is what Apostle Paul takes when he makes his speech at Athens, which is recorded in the book of Acts in the Bible. He begins by telling the Greek intellectuals gathered there that he will talk about a new god. But he eventually reveals that their own philosophers, the Greeks, already taught about this god as the one in whom we all live, move, and have our being, and that this god has always been near them. So Paul adds they should no longer worship merely created things. 
And this is why even though the classical Greek and Roman gods were abandoned, their more philosophical ideas became part of Christian thought. The logos of Greek philosophy, the good of Plato, the unmoved mover of Aristotle were all eventually identified with a Christian god. Or simply put, gods like Zeus, Poseidon, or Athena did not meet the new definition of what Christians meant by God, while these ideas about the divine ground from Greek philosophy did. This approach of identifying the new idea of God in the beliefs and thoughts of other peoples is what Christian missionaries have historically followed. Find in those beliefs what Christians would call God. Sometimes it would actually be a God, always a supreme deity that created all things. Sometimes it would be a more abstract concept, concepts like the Logos or the Tao or Truth. Now it wasn't always successful. For example, in feudal Japan, Christian missionaries translated the word God with the Buddhist idea of Verokana and then found that there were too many dissimilarities when it got down to the specific historical teachings. Most commonly though, they simply use words that denote the divine ground or being with no further specification. In those times, the Christian God is always translated with that undefined word God with no specific name beyond that infinite I am that I am who caused to be what I caused to be. God in English is such a translation, as is Deus in Latin, as is the Greek word used in the Bible, Theos. It's to say, this God is your God beyond all names and domains. You already know this God in your respective traditions. Don't call any entity less than that God, and don't bow to it. You're worth more than that. Your allegiance is worth nothing less than what is the divine ground of all things, ground and origin of even those you called gods. All of this is certainly not to say that this is how Christians have always converted other peoples. There have been too many times in history where Christians resorted to compulsion or force to displace other religious beliefs. That that is an approach that is fundamentally opposed to the one that I've been describing. And in fact, the Christian Gospels begin with a dire warning in the story of the temptations of Christ that such actions actually lead to the reign of the devil. But we cannot talk about that before we explore two other ideas that Christianity presents. How this God of Christianity, the divine ground, the infinite reality, is to be encountered and encountered personally in our world and how we live in a fallen, broken world of our own making and the repercussions of what that means. So please join me next time for the 8th episode, why we actually think we are sinners and why that matters. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoy this content and want to hear more, please subscribe, follow, and share. Until then, I will be waiting here.